So there are many ways in which play can be useful, but yeah. not necessarily in the way that you see it. So play fighting, yeah. uh, it was thought, well, they're, they're practicing playing for when they have to do real fights as adults. But mm -hmm. studies showed that these animals that are engaged in play fighting doesn't really help mm. them when they fight for so real. So are, are you t are you telling me that cats that chase more lasers don't also end up bringing more birds home because they've honed their their skills necessarily? No, studies have actually shown that giving kittens playful experiences with the predatory play where they chase has absolutely no effect on how good punchers wow. they are in their adults. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm your host, Shane Moss. Joining me today... Got a special guest, Jordan Burghart, who I'm going to have kind of introduce himself. But how I know Gordon is uh, is because uh, uh, during COVID, I've been sitting in on a poker night every every other uh, Saturday with with some academic friends and meeting some new people. And Gordon has a ton of interesting research, including. Uh, we're going to be talking about a few things today, including anthropomorphism and and play and animals. He has a book, um, The Secret Social Lives of Reptiles. Um, and uh, but but I think we're maybe going to do a whole separate reptile episode with Gordon and his co-author, um, co-authors another time. So we're going to be talking about play today, which is a little bit fitting because we play poker together. Gordon, before you kind of introduce your background, the, the people probably want to know, how would you rate my uh, poker skills? <laughs> well, I would say um, uh, above mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> that's so generous i i would rate them below mediocre i actually i actually love play i love uh i love i love board games i like chess and i and i enjoy gambling i i like blackjack but there's something about poker I can't get myself to care that much about. I like the I like the social. I like hanging out with you guys and chatting and everything. I can't get myself to care enough to make the right moves. I like to make the exciting moves and play a little recklessly. So I always end up losing money, as Gordon can uh, testify to. <laughs> but um but that's that anyway gordon uh wh why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to the uh um to the audience and give them a little bit of your background okay i um was raised in the midwest in wisconsin actually and uh, uh went to college and uh got a degree and uh undergraduate degree in a new program called biopsychology and then got my phd in in that area but actually studied uh, snake behavior and I've been very interested in reptiles all my life, but I've sort of remained at the cusp between biology and psychology uh, for the rest of my career, and uh, and I still continue my interest in in reptiles, uh, which which I did my early research back in the 1960s, believe it or not. So, um, I've where been in, here. Where in Wisconsin were you from? 
I was born in uh, Milwaukee. Oh, nice. In, in the Bayview area, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I went yeah. to University of Chicago. Uh, that was 100 miles south. And then um, I came down in, to Tennessee, uh, where I've remained uh, for over 50 years now at the University of Tennessee. And I'm in both the departments of psychology and ecology and evolutionary biology. So, again, it's that uh, relationship between the biology and the psychology that's uh, uh, always been my interest and that I sort of remained in. Even though being a person who studies reptiles in a psychology department, uh, you get a lot of uh, concerns. For <laughs> you psychoanalyze snakes, you know, that sort of. Yeah, so. yeah. So so we're kind of going to be talking about play um, quite a bit today. I, I do. Uh, so, so you study a lot of play in animals and you also have uh, it's, it's kind of important to you. You've been critical of some of the anthropomorphizing um, that happens in in research. Could you maybe set that up a little bit and and maybe some of the uh, why um, why we have to be careful not to anthropomorphize too much and. Situations. Well, anthropomorphism, when I uh, was in, uh, started off in school, uh, there were two sins that you shouldn't do as a scientist studying animal behavior. One was uh, being anthropomorphic, and the other was uh, relying on anecdotes. So those mm-hmm. are the two sins, and they go back to like the early 19th or late 19th century and the post-Darwinian enthusiasm for uh, looking at continuity between animal and uh, non-human animal and human behavior. Uh, even Darwin got very anthropomorphic in uh, looking at relationships between the emotions and mental lives of uh, other species and ourselves uh, for the goal of focusing on continuity and their similarities, uh, but often uh, based on, at that time, uh, really poor methods to study behavior. There wasn't really, um, you know, motion pictures or movies or video uh, to document behavior. And uh, it was very easy to uh, apply human-type processes, concepts to uh, other species. And in fact, anthropomorphism is the attribution of non-human characteristics to non-human beings, uh, non-human things. And that includes uh, the weather, that includes non-animate uh, non things. And actually, anthropomorphism uh, began as a way of looking at God, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, uh, in many religions, uh, we view anthropomorphize God. We give God, you know, gender. You know, male gods or female gods. We yeah, uh, give kind of kind of looks feelings. like us, just bigger muscles and the beard, and up there just like a larger size and kind of, kind of those sorts of things, like pictures of Zeus or something like that. Right, and the uh, idea of a personal God, a God who's looking out for you, someone that you love and admire, and, and these these are very anthropomorphic kinds of uh, tendencies that seem to be pretty endemic into uh, uh, you know human psychology, and. Mm-hmm. We apply it also to, uh, as I say, inanimate things. We talk about ecology. We talk about insulting the flag, for instance. Uh, You know, we use this general terminology. And then when you start looking at animals and how they may be feeling or responding, uh, we often then fall back on our own, what we would feel like or what we would do in those situations, which may not always be wrong at all, but we just have to be critically uh, aware of uh, those kinds of uh, interpretations. 
because what what there there's also you could err on the other way as well which is what would you call that like anthro denialism or something like that where where maybe um you know you know there's there's people that like to think oh well humans are at kind of the pinnacle of life or evolution or we have dominion over animals and there's there's also been a risk of of um people not considering that animals are actually experiencing some of the same things. And we even see this amongst humans where we have uh, dehumanization of outgroups and whether that's different cultures or religions or race or what have you, we tend to uh, so- sometimes go go the opposite way and not realize that, that other minds are sharing um, similar attributes as our own. That's absolutely true. And in fact, uh, I wrote with a uh, former grad student, Jesus Rivas, uh, a paper we call Anthropomorphism by Omission, where mm. we're so concerned about being, you know, objective and, uh, and non judgmental in a way that uh, we don't see the similarities. And so mm. I've been very influenced uh, through my career by uh, an Estonian biologist called Jakob van Juxkel, who came up with the idea of the Umwelt, that all species, um, all different people, have their own way of looking at the world and uh, being impressed by the sensory uh, stimuli around them, and that uh, we need to really make an effort to understand each species umwelt, as well as each individual's uh, way of viewing the world. Uh, So uh, it's a perceptual side of things that we need to uh, look at that you know, other animals don't see the world the same way. They see things that we don't, like bees see ultraviolet light patterns. What's a white flower to us has many structural y- units and complexity to, uh, t- uh, t- uh, to a bee or to other species. Uh, uh, you know, many mammals don't see colors the way we do. Uh, and... Uh, their visual abilities. Humans, are quite we, we don't have humans. Don't have the same kind of olfactory uh, senses as many of the mammals out there, and kind of the uh, the use of it in navigating our world to to the extent that many well, other mammals do. Look at bats, and many rodents have ultrasonic uh, hearing on um, vocalizations. So they're chatting away and communicating at that we are completely oblivious uh, to. Mm. And that has consequences. For instance, uh, in animal laboratories uh, where you keep rodents who are very sensitive to uh, vocalizations, ultrasonic vocalizations, yet we can have machinery and uh, uh, air conditioning systems and so on that are generating really loud sounds that we can't hear but could be really obnoxious and harmful to the other species. Yet because we seem, oh, well, if we can't experience it or it doesn't exist, that is a major error. So that's what we call by anthropomorphic biomission, forgetting that other species may be sensitive in ways that uh, are alien to us. That's so interesting. Wow. Yeah, there, there's this new, um, I haven't watched all of it. I started a little bit. There's a new David Attenborough um, documentary that came out. And, and I, I know, like, you know, there's some compromises made uh, making things entertaining for, uh, for the general public. But, uh, but the, the, the premise, whether there are, whether how well they're executing it is, I haven't watched enough to know. And, uh, and I, I certainly am, 
uh, might not have the eye for the, some of the mistakes they might, might be making. But the premise of the documentary is taking modern technology and trying to find a way of translating animals' um, uh, perception in a way that we can understand using like infrared cameras and, and that sort of thing. It's really interesting. You might enjoy it. And for, for listeners, it might be worth checking out. Yeah, people have been uh, looking at this uh, for some time now, trying to, and again, it goes back to Von Uskel, trying to portray what the same scene would be to a dog, to a human, to a fly. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the different stimuli are differently salient to those, uh, uh, to these different organisms. And so how we see the world is then shaped by these uh, ways that the stimuli have not only been salient to us, but we've evolved certain ways of viewing the, uh, the world that are both species specific and then uh, unique to each of us. It must be such a tough balance trying to figure out what, what side of that coin um, one is erroring towards where if you take something, it, it you you could see something that something that uh, you know three different things going from point A to point B. One flies, one swims, one walks on land. And the, one way of looking at it is like, well, this is all the same sort of behavior. This is all just a way of moving from one place to another place. And then from another perspective, you look and go, well, swimming is completely different than flying, which is completely different than walking or running. And how, how do you kind of find that balance? Well, that's what makes science interesting is that there are no simple answers for many of these uh, questions. And particularly when we get into uh, the behavior of, of other species as, uh, well, we know the difference between, you know, swimming and walking, running, and uh, maybe gliding and uh, doing things that uh, my daughters do, but I didn't like the hang gliding and things like that. Obviously, I, one of the reasons you do that is to get different sensory experiences as well as thrills and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, which transitions quite nicely into play. Let's let's talk about play and, and some of your research. Maybe a little... Um, a, a little bit of uh, history of play because uh, I, I imagine it's it's one of those things. Uh, so what one of my one of my best friends, Peter McGraw, he got into humor researcher, uh, or, or he got into humor research um, some years ago, and uh, one of the things that I've seen him struggle with is getting academia to take humor research. <laughs> seriously <laughs> simply because he's studying comedy comedy is this funny thing it doesn't get taken seriously what what is the what's the point in studying why we laugh or what makes us laugh and and i imagine the same sort of thing is easy to dismiss when we see adolescent mammals um jumping about in a playful way and we go oh that's just some ridiculous behavior that's that's not as important as tackling the predator or or, or tackling the prey or running from the predator and and probably doesn't um get 
uh, taken it quite as seriously. Oh, that's absolutely true. And uh, uh, I've uh, been concerned about that uh, when talking with uh, biologists, trying to get them interested in play. Uh, well, there are several things. First of all, until recently, almost everybody said play just occurs in some mammals, um, lots of young mammals and maybe some birds. But other than that, it's not part of the animal kingdom. Uh, and since most biologists are interested in sort of general processes that, you know, pervade all of life, uh, then play doesn't seem to be, it's just a marginal thing only found in some smart animals and so on. Um, and then also play being sort of not important or frivolous or fun, uh, therefore means it's not a serious scientific subject. And although scientists might balk at admitting that that's why they haven't been very interested in uh, in play, but that's certainly the case. Uh, take evolutionary psychology, which is, I know, an area that you're interested in. You look at most of the evolutionary psychology books, uh, you find virtually no treatment of play in evolutionary psychology tech textbooks. Uh, the one I've used and the last time I uh, taught the course uh, this, this spring um, called uh, The Evolution of Human Behavior, play isn't even in the index. And uh, I sort of talk about play quite a bit in that, in that class. And it's a good textbook, uh, but you can go through, and I don't want to mention names, but uh, uh, play has been very much neglected in uh, in much of the uh, the evolution psychology literature, they like to focus on sex. They like to focus on you know a mating and jealousy and fighting and crime, uh, serious subjects, uh, but not on those things that actually may be more critical, uh, in my view, to how we evolved as a, as a species and have features like cooperation and fair play and. Uh, Meta communication, a lot of things that I think we learn and other species learn um, in their interaction with each other is through play. Mm. Learning to read signals, how to respond, and and this sorts of a uh, thing. Yeah, you, usually um, the the stuff that gets highlighted within evolutionary psychology that's close to play would be kind of um categorized under say a courtship behavior like dance or something like that or or sports are 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 uh some kind of status recognition sort of thing but it that kind of tends to neglect um uh why say juveniles like uh, oh, kids are maybe playing like cops and robbers or jumping around and playing the floor is lava. So th those sorts of things aren't talked about as much. Yeah, I think that uh, it, part of the problem is that people just uh, don't know how to approach play. And because there's been few studies until recently that actually show definitively adaptive functions of play. So there's been a search and uh, arguments for years on what is the function of play? Why do animals play as if there's a single function? And one of the ideas of well, it's, it's uh, practicing instincts for adulthood or uh, it's learning social skills or it's, there's been a lots of uh, proposed benefits of play, uh, but very little uh, evidence, definitive evidence uh, until recently. 
And uh, now what we're finding is that there are lots of different kinds of play. It's a very heterogeneous category. And that uh, a play may have no functions or uh, several functions or uh, in one type of play might have a certain kind of function and a different kind of play may have a different type of function. And so is there's no simple answer. And so again, uh, we're now making pretty good progress into uh, some of the functions of play uh, involving, you know, uh, aiding courtship behavior and reproduction or uh, aiding in um, learning certain types of, of, of skills or how to interact socially, but, or to uh, buffer oneself against uh, stress. That's one of the things I think we're going to find out more and more that uh, uh, kids and uh, animals that engage in uh, playful interaction, vigorous playful interactions, uh, are uh, more able to uh, resist stressful uh, events. And uh, mm. people have noted the correlation between increasing levels of depression and so on in young people. Uh, uh, and mm. mental uh, problems that this may be exasperated by the fact that uh, there's so little outdoor physical recreational play that they can get themselves immersed into and uh, you know mm. parents are afraid of the kids getting injured or uh, you know dangers being outside and so on plus we have the uh, you know the, the cell phone and the video games and uh, which again uh, have certain advantages uh, but they are very uh, addictive and very much take kids from sort of interacting with each other socially as well as outdoors and uh, and physical activity it's such a mismatch with our uh, our modern world and our evolved world and just the uh, when i think about technology or playing a game or something and on a on a phone uh, which you know i'm, I'm not I'm not criticizing or denying that they're fun or any we play poker together, you know, but um it there there is it it's almost like hijacking the reward system or turn or or turning play into a easy concentrate or something like that of of what would be normal um behaviors you would you would go outside and it would take you a little bit more time and effort and physical activity to get that same fix in a way right absolutely i agree yeah so when when you talk about um how do you approach play that is that is a, an exceptionally important question what i mean that that seems like a big uh <laughs> that seems like a, a a big ambitious challenging um domain to cover but what it what do you think about when it comes to approaching play and how to research it? Well, when I first got into uh, a play behavior, there sort of give you some some of my personal anecdotes, I guess. One was that I started off by looking at reptile behavior, young reptiles. So I just done a lot of work on baby uh, baby snakes and their feeding behavior and antipredator behavior. We studied uh, iguanas in the field and how early behavior and. Um, I saw things like curiosity and so on, but I never really saw anything that I would call play uh, initially. Uh, 
and then when I came down to Tennessee, uh, there weren't that many students interested in doing research on snakes and psychology department and reptiles. Uh, but the park at that time, the Smoky Mountains was having, uh, Great Smoky Mountain National Park was having a bear problem. Uh, this is before they came up with bear-proof garbage cans and things like this. And bears were hanging on the sides of the roads. And there's one road that goes through the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and they had bear jams because the bears would come out, beg for food, people would feed them, cars were just backed up, and uh, it was uh, got to be a real problem. So the bear, uh, the park service decided they were going to have some uh, a ten-point plan. And some of those aspects of that 10-point plan uh, struck me as a little strange. Like they mm -hmm. were going to outfit all the park rangers with baseball bats. And so uh, when the park ranger came across one of these bear jams, they would go out with his baseball bat and bop the head on uh, the bears as, as a way of, quotes reinstating their instinctive fear of humans or natural fear of humans. Right. Um, and that, of course didn't work because a bear can see the rangers with their distinctive hat at quite a distance and take off. So, so I think mm. did things like suggest, well, maybe you should have an undercover ranger if that's how you're going to do it, though. I think that's a really a bad uh, way to, uh, to solve the problem. And they say, oh, no, we can't do that because if you're on a park service, you have to wear the uniform. You <laughs> uh, but anyhow, one of the, of the <laughs> 10 uh, uh events that they wanted us to, uh, that they proposed one was research and uh -huh. since i was sort of an own behavior guy here in tennessee and uh um i thought well i could maybe Run get involved in some research at the uh, at the park and yeah. the long i won't go through the whole story but we ended up the park rangers found some abandoned bear cubs and uh uh, since I was a guy who was interested in the bear, uh, bear behavior, uh, they uh, I ended up raising two bear cubs in my house at home because this I had no facilities for them. And, amazing. Uh, and we they were the most playful <laughs> animals. They, they, these, these girls, they were Kit and Kate. Uh, they were the most playful animals to have and they, uh, yeah. they had in our house. And uh, so that really got me attuned to... Uh, uh, to play uh, is very important. He did a paper on uh, the development of the be of behavior in these bear cubs. And finally, we got wow. uh, some money to build an enclosure up in the park and continue uh, uh, <coughs> keeping the bears uh, when they got like, you know, hundreds of pounds of, of age. But that stuck with me that uh, this, these were super playful animals. Well, then yeah. some, ar some articles. I, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Can we just take a little bit of a tangent here? Because I I want to be more playful. Uh, <laughs> you I, you raise you raise two bears. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you glossed over that a little <laughs> a, a little bit. I uh, what? First of all, before before listeners go off and get themselves some bear cubs <laughs> to play the what are what are the pros? and cons of of raising <laughs> raising some bear cubs in your home well this is something that could never be done today uh, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 clearly uh, but uh, these bears uh, you know they had to be fed milk every several hours and the, the bottles and wow. formula and everything so uh, um, 
somebody had to take care of them. And um, what happened was a ranger came across uh, four uh, abandoned cubs, four cubs alone yeah. under a log, and uh, thought, well, maybe the mother had been driven by way by uh, dogs or something like this, and uh, so left, came back th the next day, and two of the cubs were gone. Uh, and so he got concerned that, uh, oh, these cubs are going to, you know, die if the, the, mm -hmm. the mother has been driven off maybe by dogs or scared or poachers killed her or something. Uh, so uh, he uh, brought them back into the... Uh, to, to the main office headquarters of the uh, of the uh, park, and then um, we were contacted. Uh, some of those us of us who are working with uh, with the, with bears, and I ended up having them at home. And what uh, were their names? Kit and Kate. Kit and Kate. Yeah. All right. And, All right. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if it's a, a who gave them the name. Maybe one of my students. <laughs> but uh, How... Kit and Kate, they were girls. Uh, and uh, I say they were my first twin girls uh, because later on <clears throat> I have identical twin daughters. <laughs> oh wow! Now how how long did you um how how long? It, by the way, we'll get back to your research. I'm just curious. <laughs> I didn't know this about you. Um, it, how yeah, how uh. How long did you raise them in the? You said you got an enclosure. <laughs> Eventually, how big did they get before you were like, okay, we got to get these bears out of the house? Well, uh, we probably had them uh, a number of months. I mean, uh, they were probably uh, we probably had them about four, four. I can't come up with the exact details now, but it's probably okay. about it's six okay. months. Um, and um, you know they've got pretty big in uh, over those uh, six six months, uh, but uh, and then we couldn't keep them. I I, I designed a sort of a uh, an enclosure like a playpen when it had a roof on it and everything, and a little stronger than the ones that uh, uh, mm. we use for babies, human babies. Uh, and so that's where we kept them in, except when we were home, we left them out running around. Uh, and uh, we had some other. Uh, we had the bears. Uh, they got into some problems. They could get into any door, any you know, open up any cabinets. I mean, we just couldn't let them out around in the house uh, when we yeah. were weren't there because they would. Uh, could get, <laughs> they were they, they're so smart. That's another thing that uh, impressed yeah. me about them. But they were always playful. They were very uh, uh, engaged with each other. Uh, but we also noticed that they would have locomotor play, running around, jumping, and things. That they'd also then objects. They would really like go through my wife's purse and stuff like this, dump all the contents out and explore and uh, everything. And then they would also chase and wrestle and so on with each other and with us. So uh, we actually had quite a bit of a, a film. We actually put a, together a film that I showed at a conference many years ago uh, with uh, them playing with us. Uh, I would get in, this, in the closure, even when they're out in the Smokies, and they were now maybe 250 pounds or so, and wrestle with them and so on. Um, Amazing. Which was pretty so interesting. This, the, so this is kind of this paradigm shift for you in a way. This is this, is this insight and perspective that probably changed the course of your of your life and your in your research in a lot of ways and and sent you down this this path right well we studied the bears for quite a while and number of students did their dissertations and uh uh 
theses on, on them. Uh, we, for instance, were the first ones to really document experimentally that bears have really good color vision. It was thought that uh, uh, like dogs or uh, you know, they have teeny little eyes and so on, they really uh, just are smell-oriented uh, animals. And, uh, and But their hearing's really well, good, very good and uh, it turns out that they have really good uh, form and color uh, discrimination abilities. Uh, and now that's been shown in quite a few other species of, uh, of, of bears also. Uh, but uh, that was sort of the groundwork that laid back on, uh, on, uh, on, on the play. Uh, mm -hmm. But then I uh, was visiting the National Zoo and uh, they had an exhibit of this huge uh, Nile soft-shell turtle and uh, it had a label on it saying uh, the oldest basketball player at the zoo. And there was a really creative uh, a zoo curator who had been trained in reptile behavior, uh, but he was the reptile curator at the zoo. Uh, and uh, they had this big turtle in this sort of barren concrete tank, and it was uh, sort of self-injuring itself and mutilating mm. itself. And... Uh, uh, so he had the idea that um, no one really had before that maybe the turtle was bored. <laughs> and so he started providing uh, objects, hoops and balls and basketballs and things like this. Uh, and the turtle would knock them around and engage in activities, playful activities with these objects. And then the self-injurious behavior really fell off uh, dramatically. And uh, so we documented, filmed that, and that was sort of the first paper that uh, really uh, helped document that uh, uh, turtles could play, a reptile could play. And this started changing the idea that play was found only in mammals and some birds, but may also uh, be far more widespread uh, in the animal kingdom evolutionarily. And uh, But in order to get to this position, uh, you have to come up with a definition of play. What is play? Mm -hmm. And uh, that turns out not to be a simple issue. And you go into early literature and you'll find all kinds of definitions of play. Uh, all, all, most of them only apply to certain kinds of play. They'll talk about uh, like social signals and so on. Well, that's only works for social play uh, and uh so try to come up with a, a generic definition that could cover all play, including phenomena that you would not think were play, and also in species that you uh, thought couldn't play, like fish, for instance, uh, uh, was sort of a challenge. And uh, so that's where one of the things that I had to really start and uh, to come up with uh, what I ended up coming up with, the five criteria for identifying play that... Uh, seem to apply across the board and uh, they've been sort of fairly uh, widely adopted now and people now have identified and recorded play in uh, uh, invertebrates you know octopus that uh, you're wearing an octopus uh, there's some of the uh, best play uh, studies was done by a fellow uh, in austria uh, michael kuba and a canadian woman jennifer mather and some others uh, uh, identifying uh, playful activities in uh, in octopus, and um, 
There's evidence I, I know now. a lot of people saw the octopus teacher um, over the over the course of the last year, and I, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see it yet, but beautiful little documentary. Right. Uh, no, it won the Oscar, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I know people who have, and they're very much impressed with it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but there's quite a bit out there now on play in uh, octopuses. Uh, and in other invertebrates and fish uh it's now been well documented and uh and lizards and crocodilians uh, even in snakes there might be some playful uh behavior uh, although it's harder to identify an animal that can't do too much in terms of facial expressions and uh and right. moving its limbs and stuff like this so it yeah. makes it a little harder to identify yeah, but yeah. Uh, uh that was one of the things that i think uh helped uh, broaden our interest in play so that it's not just something that's found in a few isolated endothermic uh, vertebrates and thus not of general interest, but it really may be much more foundational. And uh, mm. when you find that in vertebrates and uh, vertebrates who have been separated by 600 million years at least uh, of evolution still have comparable uh, behavior, uh, means that there's something going on there. It also means that play is not a homologous kind of activity, something that evolved once in one way and that was it. Uh, uh, but it's, uh, you know, like eyes and limbs and other things, they uh, evolved repeatedly in um uh, Independent of one another, like flight and uh, flight of so, some things had... Uh, uh, some things started with gliding. Some things had feathers for warmth that eventually yeah. used to flight, and and uh, there was a few different ways that um, that the evolution of of flight took off. Uh, pun intended, I guess. <laughs> but uh, but it, so so play is is the same way. So how do you uh, how do you categorize? You said that there's five ways in which uh, you categorize play. What are uh, what are the five? Let, and if if you don't mind, um, because I already uh, I I already had a had a look at uh, them. I'd I'd like to dig into each one individually a little bit, if uh, if we could, instead of just quickly listing them. If you're up for that, uh, yeah. Well, so if you want to get into the details. Uh... Probably the first criterion is that uh, the play is incomplete. Let's get a little more technical, maybe, than you want, but incompletely sure. functional in the context in which it is expressed. Right. So it's it's not uh, it's not directly uh, in in terms of utility. This play is not directly benefiting it in terms of like spreading genes or something in this very moment, this is something that's maybe training practice that's maybe will have um, downstream utility, but right in this very moment, it isn't benefiting. Right, see one of the first that people way people say, well, play is something that doesn't have function. It's, it's not, it has no function uh, because just frivolous or it's just done for its own sake, uh, which can be true, but uh, how do you separate what you call play fighting from regular fighting? Well, it's, there are certain criteria that you can show that one's really engaged, 
agonistic and uh, injury producing and other uh, is, is not. Uh, but when you see animals engaging in play or throw a cat with a mouse, for instance, or a, a rubber ball, uh, it's not trying to hunt or eat or kill <laughs> that, uh, uh, that animal, but so it's incompletely functional, but it may mm -hmm. be functional, it may be adaptive in helping the animal learn how to respond to objects, learning you know, body motor coordination. It may have an exercise function, uh, uh, so you may engage in vigorous activity uh, that doesn't seem to be functional, uh, but it's actually helping your heart, it's helping you know, your, your bodily functions in some other way. So there are many ways in which play can, as I say, be useful, but yeah. not necessarily in the way that you see it. So play fighting, yeah. uh, it was thought, well, they're, they're practicing playing for when they have to do real fights as adults. But mm -hmm. studies showed that these animals that are engaged in play fighting doesn't really help them when they fight for real. Uh, mm. Similarly, early studies showed so, that- So are, are, you t are you telling me that cats that, cats that chase more lasers don't also end up bringing more birds home because they've honed their, their well, skills? Well, I don't know about the laser part, but no, studies have actually shown that uh, uh, giving uh, kittens uh, playful experiences with uh, the predatory play where they has absolutely no effect on how good hunters they are when they're adults. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Uh, these well, studies done the back in the back in the seventies, and uh, that helped sort of seal huh. the fate. Well, it can't be they're very important then, right? <laughs> uh, but Weird. that might huh. actually be important in different uh, 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 different ways, including just getting rid of boredom. Uh, right. That's uh, the fact that uh, you find play in many species much more common in good captive environments in zoos and so on that you do in the wild. Uh, it could be due to the fact that the animals in captive environments, if they're well fed and healthy, uh, the predators are kept at bay, they get bored. And so yeah. then you start engaging in activities as a way of self-stimulation, of uh, yeah. uh, engaging in uh, doing something uh, 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 in, in, in the world. Yeah, so I, I, can, I can blame my parents' stable upbringing for my, uh, my thrill-seeking <laughs> behavior, <laughs> essentially. I'm the elephant that needs the barrel to bat around in the, <laughs> in the zoo where I, I go mad. Um, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, that's, I, I, I would have total honesty. I would have predicted just the opposite. I would have, I would have predicted this as training for predator behavior or something like that. That's, that's fascinating. Um, all right. So, so that was the context. So that was, that was number one. Right. And then, um, let me see what I, one would be, um, The fact that we consider the behavior sort of spontaneous or fun or uh, something that uh, is done for its own sake or reinforcing. Uh, you can use any one of those terms. 
but the behavior somehow has some internal motivating aspect to it. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not that something forced that to, to do. Uh, so uh, some people may not want to use the word voluntary or spontaneous. Uh, somehow, what nothing is spontaneous. You could, you know, but the idea that right. uh, uh, or that it's fun or rewarding or reinforcing. Right. Uh, uh, so rather uh, than rather than uh, rather than giving a, a light and like a reward or something to a, a rat and it's hitting the lever and getting the reward or delivering a shock so it's avoiding some behavior, this is just the rat sitting in the cage, just uh, using its own kind of general curiosity board trying to. Uh, uh, investigate the area or something. Well, rats are actually a very interesting animal because they're the most studied animal in terms of play behavior. Most mm. people don't uh, realize that, but there are literally thousands of papers on play behavior in rats. Uh, they're very playful uh, for about four or five weeks of their life <laughs> um, mm. before they really hit uh, adulthood. And um, they engage in this behavior of uh, spontaneously and repeatedly for hours at end. And so uh, if you take two rats uh, and you raise them in isolation, but then you give them play dates, half an hour a day or something, uh, they'll just engage and play almost continuously for that uh, period of time. No one has to teach them. They know what to do. uh, And it develops as they get older, they they change the type of tactics that are that are used. Uh, a good friend, uh, Serge Pellis, uh, and a number of others have uh, devoted a career basically to looking at uh, behavior uh, from the fourth to the eighth, seventh week or so of life of, of, of rats and getting now into what are the brain chemistry and the brain regions uh, involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, yeah. uh, I was thought that play was a product of, uh, you know, intelligence in the higher brain features. You can take a rat and remove the cortex entirely, decorticate a, 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 a rat pup. Uh, people have done this, I don't, yeah. and you find that the rats develop play behavior normally. They, they, they play, wow. they have the motivation and interest in playing, and they do it. What happens is that they don't adjust their play and change it as they get older. They 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 uh, they sort of they, they can't sort of uh, play with play you might play say or, or build yeah. on it. Uh, but the motivation, all the movements, all the tactics wow. initially are are there. Uh, but they just don't uh, they can't build on those. Uh, and so other brain areas. So that's where the cortical involvement comes in. But the basic play itself is really structured it's, in the lower brain stems you might say or is the lower yeah, the low, lower the cortical areas kind of and um, and uh, a very important um, uh, neurobiologist Ayak Panksep uh, wrote quite a bit on uh, play as one of the seven major emotions uh, that goes back to early uh, for him it was early mammalian uh, evolution but that these were found in all <clears throat> all, all mammals and uh, these were like rage and uh, care and so on but play was one of the seven major uh, underlying e- emotions uh, hmm. of, of all basically all, all, all what, vertebrates. Do you know the other seven off the top of your head? Uh, 
I said rage, care, seeking is, is, is one. Um, uh, uh, it's okay. Care. I won't put you on the spot, but that's interesting about <laughs> but the... But there are several. That, play is yeah, definitely yeah. one of them. Uh, well... Well, what's interesting about the cortex is, is is the 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 cortex was was kind of some of the last. Uh, it was later in the evolutionary processes, right? So, so play has been around and, right. and with us evolutionarily uh, so, so longer than one might suspect. So, in the vertebrates, they uh, sort of related to the basal ganglia, uh, certain mm. parts of the. Um, you know things in the amygdala and so on are, are, are heavily involved, but there are quite a few brains. It turns out the cerebellum is actually also very uh, important in play behavior, which makes sense because it has to you know with balance and integration of sensory information mm. and, and so on. Um, so that's what the second criteria that a play has some um, spontaneity and it's fun and it seems to be uh, enjoyable uh which is why when you talk about sports as you brought up uh <clears throat> you take a professional uh, baseball player well they're just playing a game it's called but if you got to go out you know at a certain time and perform mm -hmm. in a, in a play but you know if you don't really feel like it. That's not, you know, <laughs> then in one sense, that play criteria is not really being, uh, being met. Although you yeah. maybe got into the sport and got into it out of For the play. Of the now you thing. have to. Right. Oh, I, I play pickleball all the time. And every time that I'm playing, because I'm pretty hard on myself, when I'm playing, I often find myself having to internally remind myself. You're, You're doing fun? this for fun. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to be having fun right now, and uh, that, that's uh, that's funny. If I could, another and and I, I apologize that my my uh, style is a little bit tangential, but um, uh, one thing that I I imagine many listeners will have heard because it's it's one of the few interesting science curiosities that's permeated through the zeitgeist is, uh, is the idea of the rat amusement park and, and addiction research. And this kind of correlates with, uh, with the two topics that we've, that we've already kind of talked about so far in boredom and the, the idea of, uh, well, well, sure. Every rat's getting addicted to cocaine or whatever in this, in this very basic, uh, cage with nothing else to do, but you give it, you give it all this other stimulus and this ability to choose, and you don't see the same um, kind of rates of compulsion. Uh, do you do you have any? I I don't know where the studies are at on that. I don't know how much that stuff's been replicated. But do you have anything to say about that? Um, probably not too much. We do know, for instance, that uh, uh, dopamine and some of the basal ganglia areas involved in play are also. Uh, very close to the ones that are involved in addictions and uh, drug dependencies and uh, and even behavioral addictions um, and obsessive compulsive disorders and so on. So uh, the idea that uh, play is just an unbridled good is probably not uh, accurate. It can be tied and uh, to things that can go off 
trails. We talked about playing poker. Well, uh, what starts as a playful activity can become a compulsive uh, addiction that can, you know, destroy uh, destroy lives. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember going to some of the uh, gambling casinos, like in uh, Las Vegas and so on, and you go into these big spacious rooms and you see these hundreds of people sitting there mechanically oh. pulling down the, the levers and you don't really get a feel that they're having fun it's uh, yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, uh, right. uh and maybe the social more social games like you know the uh blackjack and the poker there's more social interaction and maybe people get uh, more pleasurable uh, experiences, but sometimes uh, you get the feeling that uh, uh, they're just being, you know, dropping the coin, pulling the lever, and and got some intermittent rewards and just right, and that's a scenarian that kind of stuff, right? Uh, but uh, mm. that's that's not play in the, what I would say, but it shows how play can devolve you Go might sideways. say into uh, something that's not a good uh mm -hmm. even even sports the running uh, there are people mm -hmm. who you know get I, I know people who really got into the running but every day and they get to a point that if they don't run it's like a withdrawal it's uh, mm -hmm. uh you know they they get that runner's high kind of situation that uh, they become dependent uh, upon and uh, yeah, so there's yeah, it's yeah. a little controversial about how comparable that is to you know drug highs and drug addictions and so on. Uh, right. But there might be similar changes going on in the brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. So all right, so we got two. What's uh, what's number three? Well, the third would be that uh, a play behavior when you start looking at it differs from the serious version of the activity, uh, be it fighting or courtship or uh, uh, predatory hunting type of behavior, whatever it might be, it differs in uh, either the way the behavior looks, the structure of the behavior, how it's performed. Uh, for instance, in uh, uh, play, predatory play, you don't get to the point of you of the killing bite or the ingestion of the <laughs> prey, right? It's, it's It differs. It stops at a certain point. Uh, the other aspect is that young animals, we see, do a lot of play. And often they engage in uh, predatory type behavior or anti-predator behavior or uh, social uh, fighting uh, behavior before it could at all be adapted for the animals to do that behavior so mm. it's temporarily earlier in the life sequence than um than than, than we would want to see it gordon you have the best ringtone i've ever heard what's that what do you got a landline there no that's a phone and i don't i i can't figure out how to disconnect the phone <laughs> and the phone just came in and i just uh got rid of it <laughs> That's, that's Sorry. okay. No, no. It's, I'm uh, just so, making light of it. So that third criteria would be that the behavior itself uh, looks different. It's got some details that differ uh, from the serious performance of the behavior, or it occurs earlier in life of the animal than it would be typically found. Uh, mm. uh, Serge Pellis, who I mentioned earlier, uh, looked at play fighting in rats and real fighting in, in, in rats 
frame by frame, very close analysis, and found that actually play fighting differs quite a bit from the real fighting in the targets that are chosen, uh, how the animal orients, and so on. And in fact, he found that uh, play fighting in rats is more similar to courtship behavior, <laughs> adult courtship behavior, than it is to real fighting, uh, adult fighting behavior. Uh, again, that shows that the need to really look fine and find detailed uh, ways at, at, at a behavior. And uh, this was a, a landmark finding that uh, look at the details of these behaviors and they really uh, can help you indicate that they're not the same thing or they have different causal mechanisms or functions. Mm. Um, so that's the third one. Uh, do you want to go for four? Of course I mentioned? do. Okay, the fourth one would be. Well, what if we What if we stopped at three, like a real cliffhanger? <laughs> <laughs> I can do these very fast. I do this. Uh, no, no, I'm <laughs> just kidding. No, we, we have we have like another thirty minutes. So, okay. so uh, it's totally. Okay, the, so the fourth one would be that the behavior is repeated. It's not a one-off behavior. So uh, if an animal comes up to an object, sniffs it, pushes it. Mm -hmm. and then leaves and never comes back again, that wouldn't be, that's not play. He was just checking it out. Is it something to eat? Is it something, you know, that I want to interact with? But if it comes back and starts manipulating that object, moving it around, grabbing it, running around with it, uh, interacting with it uh, repeatedly, uh, then I can call it play. Now, sometimes this behavior only occurs in a very short span in the animal's life, like a lot of these rodents that play only for a few weeks in their, uh, uh, in their developmental uh, uh, trajectory. Uh, but the behavior has to be repeated. Mm. So that's uh, that's not an obvious one, but it uh, uh, seems to really be uh, important. The, I mean, it's kind of teasing apart the difference between just general explanation or and then also allowing for just mistakes. There's a difference between just tipping over a cup out of curiosity and kicking around a cup over and over again and and uh, batting it around or whatever. And so it's it's more it's hinting at there's intentionality um, too behind this. Right, and uh, that's sort of been a, uh, a sort of a contentious term, of course, in studying behavior intentionality. Why? Just because it gets into issues of deterministic ideas and that sort of thing, and environmental versus genetic uh, uh, triggers, or well, that was one of the terms that behaviorists would sort of have, uh, you know eliminated uh, the. Mm. And hmm. intent upon involves purpose and then purposiveness, and it goes back to you know, Aristotle, Aristotelian teleological explanations, and so on. So, people sort hmm. of uh, avoided that, but it becomes now it's uh, it's something that we can look at. And the final uh criterion is that a play is something that is initiated uh when the animal is in a pretty good psychological or physical state. So if the animal is, uh, you know, starving or it's really hungry or it's under a serious uh, uh, threat uh, from a predator or the climate's really bad, <laughs> the weather's really bad, play is less likely to, uh, uh, to occur. So if the animal is seriously stressed, 
and so on. So, for instance, uh, studies have shown that uh, uh, monkeys in the in the wild uh, play more, and, and in zoos too, uh, in good weather than when it's you know bad weather, when it's cold or stormy or rainy. Uh, uh, the you know climate seems to uh, can uh, trigger uh, or encourage. Uh, activities that we call that we call play uh, similarly uh, starving animals or sick animals uh, mm. don't often play we animal uh, kids that are in you know children's hospitals seriously ill uh, they often have you know clowns and sort of people coming in to try to get them thinking playfully or at least something uh, happy about the uh, uh, about the situation, or give, bring in some some joy, uh, things that you wouldn't uh, do with normally with uh, with with a kid. Now, what about um, what about kind of thrill seeking behavior where you have like um, say otters going into shark infested waters where where you don't you know you're not seeing maybe the adults do it or their or their young pups is it do otters have pups is that what we call the baby otters i think so but then the juveniles will go into like during certain times of development they'll they'll go into those kind of shark infested waters as as seemingly a way to kind of gain some life experience or maybe advertise and there's uh, there's yeah i don't know about that specific example with otters or whether the animals sort of intentionally go out into these environments but uh there's a classic uh, study by i mean hardcore uh with seals uh showing mm. that uh seals would go into shallow waters and uh you know, from, from the land and uh, play vigorously socially uh, with each other. And this is the time when uh, those seal pups would get uh, attacked and eaten by sea lions who would be lurking mm. in the in, in the area. And it was sort of the, the major uh, predatory risk of these animals was uh, during play. Uh, mm. and, and so it raises the question, well, then, why do they still keep playing or what are the advantages? We really don't know the details, uh, but certainly uh, if uh, a large proportion of the uh, seals were being killed by uh, by the uh, sea lions, uh, you'd think that that would sort of become eliminated from yeah. the population. Uh, but it, that, I mean, uh, if, a, if a certain number is, uh, would you think of some of that as being a little bit, predator naive and maybe i mean they kind of it's a bit of see now i'm going back to that's a that's a really interesting finding with the cats that that it didn't equate to um to the direct utility in the future because because with something um with something like the the seals going in the water uh you you would think that maybe they're you know, still just kids that are like trying to seek out and go out in the world on their own for the first time and are a little bit predatory naive. But also there's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of fitness advertising potentially going going on with that as well. 
It could be. I mean, many of these animals, uh, particularly the the males, uh, are get larger than the females, and they develop these harems. And uh, you know, if you're a successful male, you get a lot of matings, a lot of offspring, mm-hmm. and most of them males don't get to that stage. So it could be that uh, that experience they're getting uh, uh, through this uh, play play fighting uh, has potential for big payoffs, uh, even though. Uh, there are also uh, considerable risks. In yeah, some... maybe the males go into those waters and, and pull that <laughs> slot machine thing and see, and some of them get the all the harems. Well, that's why the complexity you see in all these animals uh, and the types of play, and we have to then relate it to their social system and uh, all kinds of uh, aspects. Uh, their ecology, for instance. Uh, we know that animals that are... Uh, even in primates, those animals that are uh, more folivorous and eating leaves, low-nutritious diets, uh, don't seem to play as much as the uh, uh, monkeys that uh, eat uh, a, f- a fruit-rich, energy-rich diet. Um, mm. And uh, well, those those, uh, those those mammals are also more territorial, generally. Uh, if, if you have a, if you're, if you're, if you evolved toward a higher nutrient rich, more sought after, uh, more scarce environment, typically they're more territorial. So, so would there be, would there be something to do with play, um, attached to status Uh, and hierarchy there? Not, well, territoriality is a little different from dominance hierarchies and hierarchical societies. So you can sort of have animals that are uh, hierarchical. They may move around a lot, uh, uh, but they're not territorial in the sense of this animal sets up a territory, uh, you know, to fight off uh, other males or uh, or females to set up their own, own territories. Uh, we know that socials, the social system can influence uh, uh, play. So uh, studies have shown, for instance, that uh, many monkeys have a very hierarchical system, like like macaque monkeys, rhesus monkeys that uh, are used so much in research. And and, and some of those animals are very hierarchical, and although they are very playful as young, you don't see much adult play in some of these monkey species. There are other uh, primate species that are even closely related, uh, macaques, that have a more egalitarian egalitarian social system um, where they're less hierarchical. And you find much more adult play in those animals. So that's an interesting situation that we see uh, in all primates, a lot of play in young animals, but only in some primates do we see uh, play continuing into adulthood. And you can Mm. classify that into uh, sexual play and uh, uh, non-sexual social play. And uh, a study is now really pretty documented that uh, the egalitarian um, monkey societies, primate societies, are much more playful as adults. Mm. And I sort of extended this idea to looking at human societies and artistic freedom. Uh, because, you know, art and music and uh, uh, 
dance and variety of these artistic expressions uh, are much more prominent or develop much more richly in more egalitarian democratic societies than in authoritarian uh, societies. You look at, you know, what happened to the, in, you know, in Germany, Nazi Germany with the degenerate art uh, uh, stuff and in Stalinist Russia where you had such brilliant Paint, uh, composers like Prokofiev and Shostakovich really tied down, uh, and what's happening in, in maybe happening in, in, in China with with our uh, a more uh, repressive authoritarian regime seems to be leery of a more playful, open hmm. uh, society, and so. Uh, and play, I think, is at the heart of the arts in in, 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 in respects. There's, it's interesting too that so many artists are so uh, introverted in a lot of ways. How how does uh, how how does how does play um, play out uh, evolutionarily across social versus kind of non-social um, uh, mammals? Is is there is there a difference? Is that is that predictive of anything, or 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 is it uh, or is it the case that uh, social animals run the gamut of of uh, of play, and so do non-social animals? Okay, let me give you a little bit of the backstory. Go back to the bears, and mm-hmm. how I really got interested in play and theory and play. Um, initially was an article that came out um, brain and behavioral behavioral and brain sciences uh, many years ago on a, a, a review of play and a, some theoretical ideas on play and it related play to uh, particularly looking at monkeys and so on to the social uh, complex social adult social society was really important for the evolution of play but now I have been looking at my bears and these were the most playful animals one could imagine when they were young, right? They were super playful. Uh, and yet bears are known for not being a very social adult, uh, socially uh, complex as adults. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. males get together with females and uh, then they leave and then the male females raise the babies. Uh, and there's a good tight social bond between the mother and the uh, uh, and the cubs. Uh, but they're not a socially complex animal as compared to a chimp society or something like that. And so, yet they were super playful, uh, more so and perhaps than many monkeys. Uh, and uh, so I posed it as a question. That can't, adult sociality then cannot be at the heart of uh, either the origin or the functions of, of, of play. Mm. And I still think that... Uh, we have a long way to go to understand the relationship between uh, social organization and uh, and and play. I I, I mean, just uh, speaking for myself, um, and this is you know anecdotal and anthropomorphizing, and I have just a great number of sins that I'm about to uh, <laughs> partake in here, but. I I feel a lot more imaginative by my by myself. I feel like there's a lot more um, 
there's not I, I I think a lot of uh uh social situations kind of have inherent restraints on imagination because uh socially you're kind of agreeing upon some like reality that's outside of it where I, I just feel like you you can be a little bit more playful um by yourself we we sing in the shower you know uh more freely or we sing in our car a little more freely around uh, uh, uh than around others sometimes and obviously karaoke and everyone wants to advertise and stuff but that's that's almost a different sort of thing um going on but neither here nor there unless you have something to say about that but i do have this idea um uh that um that i like to this is exceptionally speculative about um you know when kids play the floor is lava i i i like i like using this example of of you know kids will tear off the uh couch furniture or whatever and go and jump around on it and play the floor is lava and to me, that's so interesting because are are you much like the cats in the in the training? Are you actually going to be in a situation where you're jumping around lava? No. Are you maybe going to ever need a need to be able to jump between rocks across a stream? Maybe it's something close, but there's something really interesting about it, where you are in your imagination, in your mind's eye. You are imagining a more threatening scenario that is made benign by, because if you were actually jumping across lava, this would not be a fun time. But, but, but there's something about kind of artificially raising the stakes of that jumping around that, in my opinion, probably would lead into um, uh, intensifying um, muscle memory and, uh, and coordination. Whereas if you didn't imagine the stakes being higher, maybe, maybe you wouldn't, um, be as invested and maybe that's something of, of what play is kind of doing. Okay. Um, uh, when you get into, uh, like the kids and, and so on, like mentioned, but we get into, uh, typology of play involving humans and social play and sort of we talk about pretend play for instance social dramatic mm -hmm. play in which uh, uh you know kids make believe they're different <laughs> situations or they're uh, different characters i mean acting and theater probably comes out of this uh, uh uh, these ideas and watching my young girls uh, uh, grow up, uh, they were really imaginative and would play these different characters and and get involved. Uh, so I think that pretend play uh, and this what you talked this imagination kinds of things again this could really a little bit to the boredom issue, right? If you're in sort of you're alone and uh, uh, you start developing scenarios or. Uh, ways of uh, stimulating yourself mentally, not just necessarily physically. And so mm -hmm. I think that play is at the origin of our um, mental lives, particularly in, uh, in, in humans. 
we go from behavioral play, which we see in other animals and in the infants and so on, to mental play. We can play with ideas. We and we find this very useful. Which is the best way to go home tonight? You know, if I go this way, I'm going to run into this type of traffic, and at this time, we, you know, we 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 can go through scenarios in our mind rather than just play them out physically. And I think uh, the the source of that could very well be our our playful, physical playful uh, behavior. Uh, for instance, I've been using gestures quite a bit, uh, as do you, uh, and there's ideas that our language ability is really facilitated by uh, by physical gestures. That, in fact, if you restrict people from making gestures when they communicate, they are less articulate, uh, less creative really? in some ways. Uh, so uh, that helped convince me that there's a link between behavioral movement, behavioral uh, aspects of our lives and the mental transubstantiation, you might say, of some of those. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, well, uh, well, there's a lot of... Um, um, uh, oh, man, I'm, I'm, having a, I'm having a brain... Fr Maybe I need to move more... Um, <laughs> The the uh, ah, uh, it, it, what what is it when when we um embodied cognition yeah that's the well, that's what I was looking yeah for, that's the, a re recent of... uh, uh, within the last twenty years that's really come to the floor uh, again uh, you know given as you know my history uh, interest in the early history of the field uh, it goes back to one of the f uh, uh, the, the founding w uh, women in psychology a woman named um, Washburn who. Uh, uh, wrote a dissertation on uh, uh, this aspect back in 1916 or so, <laughs> uh, I believe. Uh, but then those ideas were sort of forgotten and mm. they're coming back to the, uh, back to the fore. Uh, mm. So going back to tying some of the stuff together and anthropomorphism and everything. So, so when I think about let, let's go back to that, lava example which i i don't totally buy as out of boredom because it, 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 here and here's why let me push back a little bit on that not to be like whatever you know you know more than i do about this field but clear up maybe some of my misunderstanding i i have uh we we all do things like we we make these straw men up like i'm 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 sitting in a car i'm driving and, um, you know, I just had a fight with a significant other or a friend of mine or 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 there was this funny situation at a bar and I missed an opportunity for a joke or something like that. And I and I, I'm driving and I'm by myself and I'm imagining this person next to me and I'm imagining having this discussion with them and I'm I'm usually winning whatever argument too by the way I'm I really their arguments are just pathetic the arguments I'm imagining them happening <laughs> having and and so yeah there's there's boredom there but there is also there's a little bit of um there there's a little bit of simulation of potential future events that happens and some sometimes sometimes you do imagine those scenarios and then 
six months later, you're in a similar conversation and you go, ooh, I already thought of this. <laughs> I've already simulated this alone by myself. And you have that perfect line and it gets the oh. laugh or you win the argument. Well, and, uh, the, one of the most creative pe people studying uh, play over the years is Brian Sutton Smith. And uh, he put forth the idea, particularly involving emotions in play, is what he calls uh, that play allows you a safe area for, uh, you might say, virtual emotions. And so uh, you're sitting trying to recreate a conversation and uh, uh, seeing how it might have gone differently, uh, uh, repartee and so on is, is playful in, in, in its way. And uh, so a lot of play uh, is a, involved in a way of us experiencing things in safe environments. So, um, you know, having coordinated trips or with a guide or something like this rather than going out on, on your own is a way of sort of putting yourself in a little safety but still allows yourself to sort of extend your experiences mm -hmm. look at amusement parks i mean people love to go to uh i did uh to roller coasters and these really th and what do you do you're screaming right and then you want to go back and do it again. And yet you're, in a way, for momentarily, you're terrified. You're involved in the really extreme emotions. Uh, but it's in a safe context. At least you hope it's safe. <laughs> those, you're you're strapped part. in to the thing. And, and there's a regulatory body that checked the strap uh, that that has strapped you in. And you're just flying. It's, it's a little bit of a, a different scenario than, say... Um, cliff diving or something like that, where there's a few more unknowns. Right. Well, it's like, you know, whitewater kayaking, which I like to do, but I'm not doing it much anymore. <laughs> Very good. Mm -hmm. Versus uh, rafting on a tour, right? So you go right. maybe through the same type of rapids and it's still pretty thrilling, uh, but you're with a, you know, a, a guide and uh, right. you're all couched up with your uh, uh, life preservers and helmets and things like uh, like that. So you're getting some pretty extreme experience. Now, a lot of people don't even want to do that, even though they're told, hey, this is safe. You know, Grandpa, you can do this. <laughs> and oh, right. maybe, uh, maybe not. Uh, but we do in our environments and our recreational activities, I think, try to, in a way, program uh, things that allow us to experience stronger emotions, stronger experiences uh, than I might normally do. Or maybe in the past we did when we were, when we walked through the woods, we always had to be a little bit more fearful about what might be out there uh, than uh, maybe we do today. Uh, mm. But, you know, those are sort of ideas that uh, can be uh, can be explored. Uh, but I think uh, there is something to uh, play as a, a way of getting a experience. Even when you're wrestling and revolving, you're getting your emotions. You're getting, you know, your uh, neurochemicals stimulated in, uh, in, in, in various, uh, various ways. Now, b before, as I wrap up, and I, I, I do want to make sure and um, unplug your book again, The Secret Social Lives of Reptiles, uh, which we'll have you and, and the co-authors back on to, uh, to talk about. Um, and, and by the way, a lot of, a, a, a lot of listeners, um, you know, might, 
might have some reptile pets. They might live in a region where they seal. They might be in Florida with chameleons running around everywhere. They, uh, um, I, I might go paddle boarding today. I might run into some turtles, and so. Uh, and, and not only is it just generally interesting to read about stuff like this, but in my opinion, it kind of enriches your life to learn about the environment um, that that you're around uh, more generally. Plus, you'll sound more interesting in a conversation when co- someone comes over to buy your pet lizard um, or, or to look at your pet lizard. But uh, anyway, uh, it. In terms of anthropomorphizing, let's go back to that floor is lava example. And when we we know that individually, lots of kids do this. And I know that when I did it, when I was a kid, I would have this this um, uh, this qualia, this this subjective experience, which I kind of had to imagine. Probably other kids were sort of having a similar-ish experience to... Does everyone see the same color of blue? We may never know, but I kind of have to imagine it's somewhat similar. Now, what uh, uh, when it comes to looking at saying like uh, a cat or something pounce at something that's imaginary or uh, a deer jumping around in a, in a pond, it, you, you kind of have to imagine that their internal processes might possibly be somewhat different where they also have an imagination that kind of exaggerates things and stimulates and simulates future scenarios that may not be precisely in line with an actual encounter that they're having but an exaggerated thing um what what is it, it how how do you navigate that where it, it is easy to be looking at animals and researching and being like, well, this isn't falsifiable. This isn't, uh, we can't, we can't study this. We can't know for certain that they're imagining this thing. Therefore, uh, we, we can only judge things by this exterior behavioral um, kind of lens and and just judge their arms moving and make assessments based on that how do you navigate that well um before we had you know the modern advances in neuroscience uh it had to sort of do it by inference from uh from behavior uh or you then would look uh maybe at the anatomical features of well does this animal have uh, the uh physiology or the brain mechanisms that analyze such and such a behavior uh but today uh there's more and more work coming out on actually recording what is going on in the brain of uh, people and animals as they engage in different kinds of activities. And so I see down the line where uh, uh, you might be able to actually make some pretty uh, close analogical, homological uh, statements about uh, the similar brain processes going on in different organisms underlying the same kind of emotional experiences or mental processing. And so mm. I think that's pretty uh, pretty exciting and maybe a way of breaking out of that uh, the conundrum. But of course, when it comes down to it, uh, we all are aliens from each uh, from any other mind, right? I mean, right. Uh, uh, 
when you smile, are you really smiling or is it? Uh, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, we can make pretty good inferences about what is going on, quotes, inside the minds of another human being. Uh, but we often make mistakes <laughs> and uh, right, to our detriment. Right, right, right. And we also allow ourselves to be fooled. So when we go to the theater or see a movie uh, and we know those actors aren't really going through the experiences that they are portraying right uh, but a good actor convinces us uh, we're allowed to enter into that in, into that world um, even though on another level we know that it's all fake mm-hmm. uh, yet uh, and so good con men con women uh, are really good at uh, uh, deception of that of that kind and i think politicians are probably uh uh leading uh characters in that uh process also yeah well uh, see what's even more interesting is they might not even be aware that they're doing well that's the whole idea of (laughs) self-deception right uh that that trivers and uh others have uh have yeah. worked uh and so you're really good at convincing other people uh if you are so convinced of the truthfulness of what you're saying that uh it uh yeah you have this pavlovian kind of conditioning to say confidence or being like very very uh self-assured and 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 uh, putting yourself out there and being convinced of of the things that you're you're believing, right. other people tend to believe it yeah. as well. And that's a problem with, of course, of, uh, of bringing in science into these discourses because science, by uh, definition, is that you're a little tentative. You never know the ultimate truth. Uh, mm-hmm. We always might have to change our views based on new evidence that comes in, but that's not what a lot of people would really like to. Uh, believe, to, to yeah. believe, or to have to have to deal with, and uh, we're seeing that with sort of the, you know the COVID things and Dr. Fauci and how he's been Fauci and how he's been uh, 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 portrayed. Because if you change your mind, oh, that means you were lying or deceptive or ignorant before, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, and, it's... Uh, so that's something about the human condition that uh, uh, really is disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, sure is. It is. It's interesting to me that most people with zero interest in science whatsoever just assume that any uh, any uh, like scientists are these mad scientists plotting against them or or whatever, which says a little bit more about what's going on in their lives than the reality, the objective reality of the situation. But then, but then uh, you know, then then see some uh some uh, md or chiropractor someone sounding sciencey but but feeding to their their feeding into their conspiracy and they see one video of that person and and trust every single word that they're saying because it's the first time they've they've actually paid attention to something that sounds a little sciencey which is usually uh a, a lot of word salad and and uh not not uh not clearly explained stuff but just a bunch of confusing terms specifically meant to get people lost in the weeds that people are suckers for but that's neither here nor there gordon 
Um, just me blowing off some steam with what I've seen through all of this. But uh, yeah, I really appreciate having you on. Is there oh, anything else fun. that you wanted to, uh, to say about your book or uh, any of your other research or, or things that you want to direct people um, toward? Not really. There's a lot of literature out there on, on, on play and animals and all its uh, oh, variations. Uh, there are new journals that have come out uh, in the last few years. Uh, so there's a lot of literature out there. And I've written quite a bit, but many other people are contributing to uh, our growing knowledge of uh, play and all its diversity uh, throughout, the, throughout the animal kingdom. And maybe awesome. plants play too. Well, that's another yeah. subject. <laughs> right. Awesome. Um, well, and uh, yeah, another conversation for another time. Uh, and I can't wait to have you back on to talk about lizards really soon. And uh, thanks for joining me as you, <laughs> you. This is funny that you're cutting out right at the end. We're having some technical <laughs> issues. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up Jordan, uh, Gordon just uh, it just happened to, uh, I'm going to see if he, there he is. Um, Gordon, are you there? Yep. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> Gordon Burghardt, everybody. Thanks so much, Gordon, for joining me. Thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. And we will chat with you more next week.